I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You could see the film Anatomy of a Fall with a friend, sitting next to each other, same theater, and you could come away with totally different answers about the ending. The film is by Justine Trier. She won the Palme d'Or for it. And as you'll hear, she is not all that interested in stories that have a good versus bad binary. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So in the opening scene of the film, Anatomie d'une chute, a tennis ball descends down a flight of stairs in this very conspicuous way. And although you don't know it yet, when you're watching, that scene is a symbol of what's to come. Anatomie d'une chute, which translates to anatomy of a fall in English, follows this French novelist called Sandra, who's put on trial for the murder of her husband, who falls to his death in their home. The couple lives in a remote location in the French Alps, and the only witness at the crime scene is their son, Daniel, who is visually impaired. As the movie progresses, details about the nature of the couple's relationship come to the surface. And as a viewer, you kind of have to question what's true and what isn't. Sometimes a couple is kind of a chaos, and everybody is lost, no? And sometimes we fight together, and sometimes we fight alone, and sometimes we, we fight against each other. That happens. And I think it's possible that Samuel needed to see things the way you described them, but if, if I'd been seeing a therapist, he could stand here too and say very ugly things about Samuel, but would those things be true? Earlier this year, Anatomy of a Fall won the Palme d'Or, that's the top prize at the Cannes Film Festival, making director Justine Trier only the third woman to win the award in the festival's 76-year history. It had its Canadian premiere at this year's Toronto International Film Festival, and Justine Trier joined Tom Power in studio to talk about it. Heads up, French is Justine's first language, so she had Asia, her translator, help with the questions. Here's their conversation. When you are um, showing the film, like you're going to do tonight at the film festival here in Toronto, are there any nerves at this stage? Oui, toujours. <laughs> Je pense que je suis toujours un peu nerveuse. Yes, I'm still always nervous, and especially going to different countries. It's always a bit of a gamble how people mm. react to the film, but I'm starting to learn to trust that there's a lot of love around the film. Are you paying attention to the reactions? Are you paying attention to gasps? Are you paying attention to... No, je, je, je pas revu le film <laughs> no I haven't seen the film uh, in a screening room with people since Cannes. I know it too well, and, and it, it's difficult for me to watch it again. Um, for people who haven't seen it yet, let's talk a little bit about it. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about what inspired the film. So I think the moment that I knew that the film was there, or that I really can say that it, it, it began to take its own, was when I had the idea of this child that would be at the center of the courtroom um, and who would see his parents' life and, and relationship dissected. And that's when I knew that um, I had the idea was something that I hadn't seen before myself. 
But what about the dynamic itself? Like it's an it's an interesting dynamic that that I, I haven't seen in a lot of films before. You have, um, um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how much I can give away here too. Um, but um, you you have a, a an author, uh, a, a woman author, who is married to a, a man author. She's you know far more successful, far, far more famous than him. There's a, a dynamic there. He takes care of a, a lot of the childcare. There's resentment brewing. Uh, between them. Talk to me a little bit about the dynamic you wanted to place between the two. Il parle de la des genres, c'est ça, entre oui, la dynamique entre eux. Je pense que c'était vraiment assez naturel pour moi d'écrire ça. Um, I would say it was quite a natural thing to write for me. I was aware that there was a kind of reversal of the gender norms in that dynamic that you name. Um, and for me, I think I, I wrote something that was quite close to my way of being and that I was aware also as a spectator that I hadn't seen so much um, um, in films, this, this female character who is so unapologetic for her way of taking up space, for the way that she lives and for the success that she has. Um, so this, this uh, norm reversal was important to me. When you say that it was something close to your own life, tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? <laughs> it's not my life that I've written out in, in any way. I should make that clear. But I mean that I have children and that from the moment I, uh, I became pregnant, I knew that it was non-negotiable for me to, to think of life as other than a, a question of parity between me and my partner and that um, um, the, the equality and the reciprocity was very central. I'm, I'm still uh, uh, trying to understand that. So... The the two central characters have lives outside of their their own lives uh, until and kind of until they have children and they're able to navigate that um, equality much better un until they have children. Is that is that what you mean? Um, je pense que en tout cas l'enfant crée une. <coughs> I would say unfortunately yes that when a when a when a child is born some kind of uh, um, uh, the the balance of whatever reciprocity was found tends to go off kilter and in the relationships that I see around me and the couples that uh, uh, I'm around who have children it's very rare to find uh, a situation in which one person doesn't end up eating the other to some degree um, and and because for me a couple is this place of a utopia I wanted to uh, dramatize exactly this struggle to try and and find um, a way to withstand the the pressure of that uh, loss of balance between people and maybe in this case what I what I showed is the, is the failure of that but it's the attempt still that failure manifests itself through um, a question in in the film while you're watching the dynamics between the relationships you are also wondering whether this um, the central character murdered her husband or or whether he he died by suicide and you chose to tell that story um sort of in one space uh, large swaths of the film take place in the courtroom what was interesting to you about telling the story through the courtroom uh, en fait pour moi l'endroit du tribunal est un endroit for me the, the courthouse is the place where we come to reappropriate our stories as stories and in the same time it's the place in which we kind of uh, there's a kind of delirium that happens around the question of the narrative uh, coherency of one's life um, and it is both the place where supposedly truth is supposed to emerge and yet of course it becomes the place of fiction and so all of these tensions are um, at stake in what my interest is um, and and I think then more generally in 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 courthouse dramas, whether at, in cinema or in, in reality, um, I'm also interested in the way in which it's a place in which society at large comes to come and work out some of its moral quandaries and dilemmas and, and to project back onto itself what a woman should be, what a man should be, what a relationship should be. And so to summarize, I would say that because this character is free both in her writing and in her sexuality, um, what 
that comes to be judged because of the lack of evidence um, uh, towards the question of whether or not she murdered her husband is her entire way of life. Um, uh, and her freedom uh, is really what's on trial here in the end. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. But I don't know. You, you, you come here, okay, with your, maybe your opinion, and you tell me who Samuel was and what we were going through. But what you say is just, uh, it is just a little part of the whole situation, you know. I mean, some uh, Talk to me about, um, given that the, the main character is famous, a famous um, author, there's uh, another dynamic at play here. There's significant press attention mm -hmm. given to the trial of whether or not she murdered her husband. Talk to me about that decision. En fait, so I think more than the fact that she was famous, I was interested in the fact that she is a writer and yes, a successful one in that and, and a stranger at that, um, stranger to France, um, mm -hmm. uh, so that she speaks uh, multiple languages and, and so that in this way there's this uh, assumption in, in this overall mastery that she has that she might be better able to dupe us or that she might be more duplicitous in that way um, and so this capacity that is assumed upon her that she can transform her identity um, uh, and make her more dangerous for that is is what I was interested in in, in creating her as a successful author uh, yeah I did notice there were moments where the um, the prosecutor would speak her English back to her in sort of a dismissive way. Yeah, I think that when she speaks French, it's um, the moments where she speaks French is the moments when she feels uh, in control or where she has mastered uh, what she is trying to say. And the switches into English occur when she is somehow overtaken. And for her, English is the language of impulse or emotion. Um, and and the, the uh, prosecutor, in some way, is always trying to corner her um, around that. Mm. Um, the child in the film, um, Daniel, um, he's in a, a, a challenging situation. His, in watching the um, trial of his mother about whether his mother married, uh, sorry, murdered his father, <laughs> um, there is uh, at the same time just the trauma of having of your of your father having died. The trauma of having it be a, a spectacle about you know whether your whether your mother is, is guilty. But what I found interesting was the having to learn about your parents' inner lives in a way that you don't typically find out as a child. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that? And I, I heard through some research that that was inspired by your own sort of relationship or your own viewing of your own daughter. Oui, quand j'ai quand j'ai commencé à penser au, au film, en fait, je me souviens. Uh, about the film in a way when I, I, I saw my daughter who at the time was around 10 years old and I started wondering how much she knew about me, about the life that I'd had before having her but also about our family history um, and I think around that time, around 10 years old there's a, it's a very transitional moment where um, a sort of opinion, um, a, a capacity for opinion starts to develop in quite a strong way 
And the question became, how does one bring a child in to their own history? How does one transmit that history onto them? So it was quite a, a complex um, sentiment for me. And and uh, I ended up writing, um, uh, of course, a script that's very far from, from my life, but it was very much influenced by that. Um, and, and then to come back to the film itself, I think Daniel begins uh, with this absolute trust and faith in his mother. And then the, this doubt uh, arises. And in the end, he finds himself in this position where he has to make a decision. Um, and that's something that I myself um, have known in my own childhood at some point, where I also had uh, was confronted with uh, two sort of uh, differing uh, uh, stories um, and, and had to, to, to pick between them. We'll be right back. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Everything we've talked to up until this point has been about the film as sort of uh, an exploration of relationship dynamics and gender dynamics and societal gender dynamics. The film um, does also revolve around a question about whether or not uh, the main character, this woman, murdered her husband. Our our producer, Glory, uh, who produced the segment, and I walked into my office after we watched the film with completely different... conclusions (laughs) conclusions okay. <laughs> about whether or not she murdered her husband. Does that make you happy? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was my 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 goal when when we were pardon, quand on était en, en, en montage. Yes, of course. In the editing room, I was really obsessed with uh, finding a way for the audience to be um, to not be on one side or the other. It, it, I was trying to find um, that that uh, tightrope. Why? I mean, as a spectator, that's what I'm interested in, 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 in um, both in cinema and in, in, in reality, uh, in courthouse sort of uh, enigmas, even once the trial has concluded, when you're still not sure. That's, that's the things that I, I I'm fascinated by. Um, now, looking for a stranger who walks in, kills him while you were sleeping right above, and Daniel was up for a walk is a shitty strategy. Samuel had no enemies. That stop, make- stop. I did not kill him. That's not the point. You're interested in there not being a uh, binary good and, yeah. a, and a binary bad. And um, it's, so it's intentional that we are supposed to sort of draw our own conclusions and make our own decisions. Oui, complètement. Alors, il y a des choses qu'on peut pas dire. I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, yeah, good point, good point, good point. But... Oui, bien sûr. Je, je pense que c'est, comment dire, 
c'est vraiment presque le, 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 la chose la plus intéressante du film, en fait. Je pense que pour moi, la chose la plus intéressante du film, sans vouloir vous spoiler quelque chose, est la façon dont le enfant devient le décideur, qui est de décider et de vivre avec ce qu'il décide de faire. Et je suis beaucoup plus intéressée dans ça que de créer un kind of twist ending qui aurait été très bien designé, comme nous voyons souvent dans les séries de TV. Je n'ai pas attendu pour une post-credit scene pour savoir qui a fait it. Thank you. <laughs> Um, what is it like to hear your name spoken when you win the Palme d'Or? Um, C'était complètement irréel. Uh, so it was completely one. surreal. Um, so of course there was a lot of joy at being awarded um, by this jury in particular, um, in which Julia Ducourneau was sitting, who had won the same award the year prior, and to come after Jane Campion also. Um, all of that was was extremely joyful for me, and to be the, the, the third woman to have this prize was exceptional, which is to say, on the moment I didn't feel very much. It took about a month and a half for me to start to register what had happened. I'm glad you mentioned that you were the third uh, woman to win, because That sparked a, a large conversation about, um, well, I think even Jane Fonda even said when she started going to Cannes, there were just, there were just no women involved and yeah. that was sort of accepted as, as the norm. I think it's very e easy, and we've talked a lot about this on this show, to have the conversation around why that's bad. Uh, it's much more challenging to have the conversation around what are the solutions. And when I was doing my research, I, I found um, you talking a little bit about the importance of quotas. Quotas are being an important thing in making sure there's representation in, in, in film. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, my view is that it, uh, as we have seen it, it doesn't happen naturally um, uh, in the history of cinema, but just also in history at large. Um, the evolution of such things doesn't just occur uh, before Me Too. It was sort of seen as a non-topic and it wasn't really something that people were paying attention to. And then it became an undeniably important um, uh, subject. Um, and, and I believe that until we have a 50% parity, um, but it, everywhere in the jury, and at every level um, it's not just going to happen on its own um, and yet I still hope that eventually it would be able to become a non-topic again um, and that we could you know be seen as uh, uh, expressing something universal rather than a kind of niche of, of, uh, of women's movies um, um, but that's in a sort of a second moment um, uh, and until then I think quotas are necessary to for the change to occur. To, to stay on the topic of sort of the um Uh, of what happened after you won the Palme d'Or. You know, I, I watched your speech um, where you you talked about something that, of course, we in Canada were paying a lot of attention to, which was around um, the, the the legislation around uh, pensions in, in France, um, the un ensuing protests, which became larger about protests, uh, the larger than about pensions, became a larger sort of... Um, class uh, discussion or, or, or class rebellion against the, the French government. You then, in the speech, sort of pivoted from there to how this relates to a conversation around the funding of, of cinema. La marchandisation de la culture que le gouvernement néolibéral défend est en train de casser l'exception culturelle française. To go back to what, you, what we talked about earlier in the interview, we talked about the, the attention of the press on the couple in the film. Um, I read more about your speech at the Palme d'Or almost than I read about the film itself. What was the experience like of, of making that statement, of having the press accurately or inaccurately interpret what you said? Um, what, what was the experience like of, of after you made that statement? Um, en fait, en réalité, je pense qu'après ça s'est équilibré parce qu'ils um, ont vraiment parlé du film. 
I would say that eventually things sort of balanced out because I eventually got uh, quite a lot of attention on the film. But it's true that in, in that first instant, um, that uh, speech and that intervention um, was very much talked about. And I think for me, it was the greatest experience of misogyny that I've um, ever had. Uh, my speech was basically identical to a speech Ken Loach gave a couple of years mm -hmm. prior. And he'd just been applauded, um, except in his home country. But generally, um, he was received with applause. Um, and... Um, I was just expected, especially being the third woman, to just sort of give a, a nice uh, little speech of thanks. Um, and so, of course, I stand by what I said very much. I would have felt very much um, um, uh, lacking in solidarity and not in my country had I not spoken um, as such. Um, then, yes, my, my words were in some cases misrepresented. So I guess there is a parallel between um, uh, me and my character in this way in which I think I, I did get a taste of what it feels like to express oneself freely and to then be appropriated and misrepresented. Um, are you worried about the future of French cinema? Um. <laughs> I, I ask that because especially in Canada, especially in Quebec, there is a, a, a great affection for and it's a very important tradition to the country. La France est un pays génial pour faire des films, évidemment. On est de so I, I would say that, you know, I'm, I'm aware and, and I just kind of wanted to laud how importantly, um, how great France is to make films. I know it's a system, the system that we have is, is really exceptional and it comes from a cultural exception and, and, and we are envied for this worldwide. Um, and so I, what I said, which isn't, you know, which I didn't invent and which so many other people say is just that it is being threatened and it's not just threatened by the government, it's also threatened by the new forms of competition mm -hmm. with the streaming platform. And, and the demand is very different than it was 20 years ago. So really, it was it was really a call for protection that um, in the process, of course, is the naming of this threat um, and is a call for care, for care for this for this uh, way of making things that we shouldn't take for granted. And in particular, what is so exceptional and what must be protected is the diversity in modes of fabrication. It's the way in which it's a system that allows for both very uh, big and very small films to be made um, thanks to each other. And so, of course, it's about protecting the possibility of smaller ones. I, I don't expect you to have an answer, but uh, this film's getting a lot of conversations around the Oscars and it's getting a lot of talk around that. First off, how are you feeling about that? And secondly, given everything we've talked about so far, is there greater meaning that that this film would be considered at that sort of higher, I don't even say higher level, that different level. Ça m'impressionne évidemment. Ce qui m'impressionne, c'est d'être vu par les gens que j'admire. So I'm, I'm very impressed or intimidated um, by the fact of being seen by so many people that I admire. Is is really where it's at. Um, it's also, of course, very pleasant. Um, um, it was never an aim for me. It's not something that I ever considered even possible. And and the anecdote um, to that effect is that when I was writing the film with my co-writer, I kept on saying to him that I was writing my most radical film that no one was ever going to see <laughs> and that after this I would make up for it by working on a, on a TV show. <laughs> to win money, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. law and order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> More courtrooms. Um, well, I, I can't begin to tell you how much we all enjoyed watching the film. And, Thank you. Uh, even just when we were waiting, people were asking me how it is. They've heard so much about it. And uh, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks so much for, to you. That's it for this episode of Q, but you can find a new conversation in your feed right now. I mean, you just heard from filmmaker Justine Trier about her movie. Bobby Rush is a blues singer whose life could be a movie. 
He started life picking cotton in rural Louisiana in the 30s. He started touring in the 1940s, made his way through the South during segregation, drove himself, produced himself, managed himself, fought through so much, made music for decades, won his first Grammy at 83, and it is way more fun to hear him tell you his life story than to hear me tell you his life story. So go have a listen to it in your podcast feed right now. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. I'll see you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.